The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. My name is Jana Sanchez. We're going to do something a little bit different today. As a trained journalist, I've listened to Wanda's many guests who were fascinating, but I was left wanting to know more about Wanda and her experience. I felt she had so much insight to offer, and I wanted to see what she had to add to the conversation. So today, I'm going to interview her. For those of you who don't know her, Dr. Wallace is president and CEO of Leadership Forum, Inc. Hello, Wanda. Welcome. Hi, Jana. Thanks for doing this. Sure. I'm really excited. Wanda, I'm really familiar with your track record as a very successful, sought-after coach, trainer, and advisor. You advise some of the world's largest blue-chip companies on how to retain high-performing senior female talent, how to develop a true culture of inclusion and, and leadership development in general. You also coach top executives globally about what they need to do to advance their career. Often these men and women are very near the board level, just seeking to get that bit further, and you help them achieve their growth ambitions. So before we start, can you tell me, tell us all more about your background? <laughs> I get this question all the time, and I cannot do it in a short story. So people want to know, how did I get to do what I do? Um, and it, like most careers, it's an evolution. I certainly did not start out knowing that this was what I was going to do. So I have a PhD in psychology. And my interest in psychology has always been, since I was a teenager, how people make sense of their world. And for me in psychology and my studies, my academic studies, that was around cognitively, how do we make decisions, come to information, memory, what do we remember, what do we don't remember, and even sensory-wise, in fact, my dissertation was on vision and how people process one particular illusion. So that's where I started. I moved then through a series of incidents and connections into the Duke University's Fuqua School of Business, first as a faculty member and then ultimately in the administration. And so I did the academic life um, for a lot of years, over 15 years. I have to say, though, every year as an academic, my questions got more and more practical, more and more implied. My academic colleagues used to joke with me that I was way too applied and way too interdisciplinary because I was interested in those unusual questions that really don't have a single disciplinary answer. And I finally decided it was it was time to move to a new venue. So it's at that point that I started Leadership Forum with two other partners in 2002, and the rest is a little bit history. My focus today is really on leadership. But leadership for me is ultimately about building stronger relationships, stronger teams, inclusive workplaces, relationships with stakeholders, clients, peers. And that means that I work with people on navigating everything from politics to conflict, to persuasion, to inspiration, to raising your profile, to speaking with presence, and even understanding how you work with somebody who is really quite different than you. And that's me. That's fascinating. I'm, this, there are, of course, the subjects that everybody has on their mind. <laughs> how, how do we do those things? How do we build stronger relationships? So to start with, um, I'm very curious about the theme of the show, about expertise. Tell me about expertise, leadership versus leadership in general. What's the difference? What's the big idea? 
Well, we've been talking about general management for a really long time. And the notion has always been that suddenly in your early years, you are an individual contributor and then you start managing teams. And that at some point you transition into this lovely world called general management where you are no longer the doer. Except when I look at my clients, and that sounds great. You know, we talk about being individual contributor, uh, manager of teams, manager of managers, manager of a function, general manager, and so on. When I look at my clients and the people I was coaching, that wasn't what their careers were looking like. I kept finding way too many people who were straddling two distinctly different worlds. Meaning, the, and I'm going to put it in the language of financial services, they were producers and managers. So I am still responsible for producing a product, selling that product, and living on the expertise of my knowledge of that product, and I'm responsible for managing a team. Now, typically, we would think that that's people very young in the organization, kind of middle management. Actually, I'm seeing those people almost all the way to the top of the organization. And as I started looking around and looking outside of professional services, it was everywhere. The the people that get to become general managers without content expert expertise are just few and far between. They exist. There's just not many of them. And again, you know, like I always do this in terms of um, risk. You know, 10 years ago, risk was not the thing that it is today. So everybody is busy about trying to control risk. But you don't want your chief risk officer to know nothing about the models for how you manage and measure and assess and control risk. You want them to actually have a lot of expertise. And in some companies, the chief risk officer is one step from the CEO, if not a direct report to the CEO. So it's a high-level position, but it's a very technical position. So the big idea is that this pure general management where you're no longer an expert has kind of gone. And now how do I straddle two worlds, both where I'm doing and knowing and being the expert in another part of my world where I'm not the expert? And to me, that's the big idea. It sounds like being an expert seems like a really positive thing. But from what you've experienced, you've seen a lot of people who struggle because they are experts. Can you talk about that? What's the hardest thing for experts to master? Uh, Well, there's two separate questions. The first one, it is really a good thing being an expert. We value expertise. It's a knowledge economy um, and has been for a really long time. So your credibility, your um, reputation, why somebody would want to recruit you into a new firm, all of those are because what you know how to do. And quite honestly, you know, there's some, you know, I don't want the IT person not knowing anything about IT. So expertise is a good thing. The problem with expertise is I run into bandwidth problems fairly quickly. There's only so much I can know. And the complexity, if you imagine around risk, is astronomical. So I now need to create leverage. And to create leverage, it means while I might be able to know it, I can't be in the details. And this is where we are in that straddle. So it's about, it is, expertise is good, but how do you create leverage? And that means you can't control everything. Okay, so what's hard? Are you saying the hardest, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, are you saying the hardest part is backing off and not controlling everything? Is that a challenge for experts? Absolutely. So the value, the two hardest things for experts are not having the answers and not knowing how you add value. So here, for 15, 20 years of my career, my value add to the company is because I know how to do something that other people don't know how to do. And suddenly you're telling me that's not my value add and I can't have all the details, that someone beneath me has all the details. And what that means is I am no longer, quote unquote, in control of everything. I have loose control, but I'm not in control. I don't know all the facts. I don't know all the figures. I have to trust that you did those facts and figures correctly, and I have to represent it at senior levels without having done it myself. And boy, is that scary, because up to that point, everything has been my value is I know, I know the details, I get it right, People call me for my judgment, and now suddenly you're asking me to create leverage and let somebody else do that, and that is scary. And then the question comes, the fundamental hard question for everybody at that point is, so 
how am I supposed to add value? If my value for 15, 20 years has been about my content expertise and I don't have that content expertise anymore, why am I important to the firm and why will you keep me? Once you can get your head around those and get over the fear that's created by those, the rest we can learn to master. It sounds like there's a lot of learning that an expert has to do about how not to be an expert or rather not to be only an expert, to be a manager, to be a true leader. Okay, now, both are leaders. When I'm leading as an expert and I'm leading as a non-expert, I'm leading in both ways. And it's not like I'm going to distinguish those as management versus leadership. They're both leadership. I still have to help people with their careers, a whole bunch of the classic stuff of leadership. It's just two distinctly different models for leading. And let me do an unpopular word to explain this, Jana. You know, for the last 30 years, we have been talking about command and control leadership as being something that is not a good thing because it sounds like I'm dictatorial and authoritarian and micromanaging. But command and control is so baked into our psyche, even if we do it really gently and kindly, it's still command and control. So fundamentally, we believe our job as leaders is to know what we need to do and how it needs to be done. And therefore, let me as the leader ensure that the people underneath me understand what to do and how to do it. And that is basically command and control. When you step out of the expertise world and into the non-expertise world, you cannot command and control. And it's scary. So um, what about the role of women? I understand that women are more affected by this than men. Is that correct? No, women are affected by it. So are men affected by it. I find that women really, really like for their work to speak for itself. They don't like to do the networking and the raising their profile and navigating the politics and all that stuff. They want a meritocracy where people can see what they've done, they respect them for the value and the expertise that they bring, and they can execute, make things happen. And that keeps you in an expert role. And so what many women are missing is the need to let go of some, at least, of the expertise to embrace this leverage. And that's where they struggle. And I find women that, in fact, I call that the glass ceiling, that they just can't get out of the knowing everything and doing everything herself to create leverage in the broader team. And that keeps them from going into the senior leader positions. Is it possible for you to give us an example of how that would play out and would be reflected in the glass ceiling, maybe specific skills that someone might be missing or specific styles that they might need? All right, I'll give you my favorite general story, and I must have seen this a thousand times. So let's take a woman, Julie, who is working very closely with a leader. She's his number two or deputy or go-to person, and he adores her. He will give her fabulous year-end ratings, year in and year out. They've been working together for a number of years. He knows her. He understands her. He trusts her implicitly. She is brilliant at getting stuff done. So she makes his life easy and she makes him look good. She loves it because she's getting lots of kudos from him. She understands her role and her value. She doesn't have to do the self-promotion. Everything is, it's great. Now, that particular guy goes on to take his next role, wherever that is or whatever it is, and he will say to his successor, she, Julie, is fabulous keep her on the team, you can trust her, she's wonderful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Julie will be sitting there saying, why did I not get the job? I was the number two. He's always talked to me about being a successor. Why isn't anybody talking to me about whether I can take his role? And of course I can take his role. I know everything he does. Except that She's kept herself in the doer space where she knows all the details, makes everything happen, is the executor. She hasn't spent her time doing the strategic vision and the you know, networking and talking up the ideas and the influence and the persuasion outside the immediate group. So she doesn't look like a credible leader to the people who would be making the decision. 
she probably could do the job, but she hasn't been exercising those muscles, if you will, and therefore she's in the number two position. And quite honestly, if she doesn't start exercising those muscles, she will stay in that number two position until she gets so frustrated she walks right out the door. And the danger there, of course, is the company loses a great a great potential leader, and she misses out. She has to start again somewhere else, I guess, That's probably with the same challenges. Exactly. So, um, so with me today is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Um, she's a world-renowned expert on leadership, and she's the host of this show. Today we're interviewing her, and she's talking so far about the challenges of being an an expert leader, an ex- a leader of expertise. Um, and next, we're going to talk about relationships and the role that relationships play in, um, in our career and in our development. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. We're interviewing Dr. Wallace today about her career and about her leadership philosophy um, and her experience. So we have been talking about um, the the things that challenge experts who become who as they move up the career their career ladder. Now we're going to talk about the, the skills that leaders need to develop, expertise leaders need to develop in order to move up. And Dr. Wallace, can you tell us a bit more about the skills that leaders need? Okay. And Wanda is fine, please. All right. So we were talking in the last segment about the two hardest things for expert leaders is to not have all the answers and then to know how they add value. And once I can get expert leaders to understand that the world has changed and they have to cope with their fear, then we actually can turn to the tools and tactics. And now it's a matter of just acquiring a bunch of skills. And it's nothing more than a bunch of skills. So let me just run through my list of things that I always work with people on developing at that point. And it is how do you inspire? 
Um, The world that you're going to deal with now is messy and very gray and highly ambiguous because all the easy black and white problems get solved by people who are underneath you. They just refer up the ones that are a nightmare. So dealing with that messy gray stuff is important. Being able to coach and develop talent becomes really, really critical because it's now one of your huge value adds. That sense of being strategic so that people have a sense of direction and where you're going. Having a great executive presence so that when you speak, people say, recognize the confidence, they listen to you, they pay attention to you, becomes an important part of how you do the next piece, which is persuade. Because your job is about persuasion. It's not because you know anymore, you got to be persuasive. In addition, um, you have to get comfortable with some things like the fact that not everyone is going to be happy with you. Just can't happen. There are too many people. And yes, there are politics. They're inevitable when we have human beings together trying to influence each other. So learning to manage that and to see it and not get blindsided by it. Um, the other thing you're going to live with is this time. Is There's never enough to do everything. So understanding how to manage your time and the priorities. And in the midst of all of that, keeping your own balance is and managing the stress is huge. And if that isn't enough, the ultimate, at the end of the day, the secret sauce is that you now are going to be working with people you don't necessarily love or like. They'll be very different than you, and learning to make those relationships effective is the secret sauce. So, yes, you talked a lot about relationships and all of those things that you mentioned, being able to coach and talent, uh, develop talent, being strategic, having great executive presence, being persuasive, being comfortable with politics. What I think is they all sound like they have to do with relationships in a way. So relationships are really crucial, and a lot of expertise managers or leaders maybe aren't so great at relationships. Is that something that you see? That's what I see. Well, people are great at relationships if if we're alike. So if I find somebody who looks pretty much like me and thinks pretty much like me, the relationship isn't all that difficult. It's when I encounter somebody who has a very different style than mine and a very different approach and I cannot get them. In fact, often don't even like it. Um, they irritate me. And let me give you an example. I'm a quite conceptual, big idea, you know, when I get excited about talking about good ideas, as you can tell, that's what makes what I do on the radio show all the time. When I encounter somebody who's very detailed and methodical, they drive me up a wall because I see them as slow and plodding and boring. Now, that is all very negative attributes on what is a perfectly legitimate and valued thing that somebody is detailed and methodical. But once I make that judgment, because they're hard to work with, they don't think the way I think, they don't do what I want to do, I make that judgment slow, plotting, and boring, I promise you the relationship will be a disaster from that point forward. So what can you do about that? I mean, it's normal for people to not like people who are really different than them. How do you work with people who are not like you and who you may not like? Okay. So there's sort of, uh, first off, admit that that's what you've got to do. That is just the facts. There's no Mm -hmm. way around in and out of this one. And then from there, there's really multiple pieces to it. So the first piece is the smarter I get about my style predispositions what feels natural to me and what I think people ought to be doing and what I want to hire for that matter. The smarter I get about that, the more I can realize somebody else who's quite different than me. And that is really an important starting point. It's not that the rest of the world sees the world the way I do. Not everybody is conceptual. Thank heavens. I need some detailed people out there. So when I get that dichotomy clear, then I can begin to see the other in a different way. So that's the first step, understanding myself and then the ability to see the other. I also think it's really, really helpful dealing with people to have some heuristics on how people are different. So four or five characteristics that you run through to try to understand somebody else relative to you. Okay, and then the final piece of this one is to let the other person be who they are and how they are. So I drop my, I jettison all my judgment, all my adjective words like slow, plotting, and boring, and I stay with the facts. 
And the facts are this person is going to methodically approach that particular problem. It's neither positive nor negative. They're going to do it. And when I approach it in that kind of action-oriented way, it's a whole lot easier to work with it. So, Wanda, what I hear is you're saying you need to get smarter about yourself and what you're like. You need to understand what the other person is like, and you need to let the other person be who they are. But how do you understand yourself and how do you understand others? What are the tools you can use as a manager to to get that, to be able to do that? Well, when I work with people, the best way I know is I use a number of psychometric assessments. Um, There's a bunch of them in the world. I happen to have three that I am particularly fond of because they give me very good slices of understanding both myself and then somebody else in contrast. Um, My three happen to be Myers-Briggs, a thing called Fyro B from the Human Element, and the Hogan Personality Suite. They're my go-to. There are others, trust me. There's plenty, 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 plenty of others. But those are my kind of stock and trade. And they but how would, how would I use, oh, sorry, how would I use those as a manager? Would I bring somebody in to assess my team? Would I know how to do that myself? Is that a skill I need? Well, um, you don't need to do it yourself. And for each of these, you need a trained professional, a certified professional to interpret them. You can do it just you for your own information and your own insight, maybe in a, in a development program or with a coach or you know, any number of places, and then you use the insights you gain from that to engage other people in conversations to understand about them. You can also, it's a powerful exercise to get the team together and to do one of these assessments with the team and to talk about differences and commonality among the team. It's a fabulous way of helping people appreciate each other one of the elements of making a great team. So either way is fine. And trust me, there are plenty of other assessments out there. I just have three favorites. And what is the role of trust in all of this? Oh, my goodness. Um, So I have a lot to say about trust. But let me start with we know a lot about what builds trust in a deep interpersonal relationship like a long-term committed relationship, a personal relationship, not a business relationship. Mm That parallel, though, doesn't exist or doesn't translate as well in the business world because the relationships are not as long-term committed. It's two to three years, and then each of us is going to be gone off somewhere else for the most part. So we need a new understanding of trust in that kind of dynamic, changing world. And so I like to talk about trust as more of a barometer. You don't, you probably are not going to have very many occasions where you're at the high end and you hope to not have very many occasions where you're at the very bottom end. So it's a matter of understanding what moves that barometer up and down in any given interaction. And I think there are really a couple of components that make all the difference in the world in trust. And it's an iterative cycle process. So one, the the big, big, big one is um, psychologically we call it affinity. Some people call it common ground. The more I have in common with you, the more I'm going to trust you. So finding that common ground is the seed of trust. The second one is emotions. If we don't connect at emotional level, if we can't discuss emotions, talk about emotions, recognize emotions, I don't mean be out of control and hysterical, but I mean be able to engage in emotions, then there isn't going to be any trust because we that's where we connect as human beings. And to do that one, it requires some vulnerability, meaning my willingness to expose that part of myself that is less than perfect. Now, I don't mean I have to tell you every deep, dark secret, but I can show you a little bit of vulnerability. You know, I don't get this exactly right all the time or no, that isn't my biggest strength. And be okay about that. And those are the seeds for trust. And then you add to that experience and iteration. You know, so I open up with you a little bit. You open up with me a little bit. It turns out it's okay. We do it a little bit more over time. That's where we build the trust. And then we get to know each other and each other's style. Simplistically, that's what I think drives trust. Okay, that's that's fascinating. Um, and... Um, so you've basically said that in order to in order to build good relationships with people, you've got to understand yourself, you've got to understand them, 
And you've got to build trust. And you build trust by building affinity and by showing your emotions. Because I think a lot of managers, leaders, don't want to seem emotional. It's sometimes a negative. So it seems like the leader has to really balance very conflicting, straddle very conflicting demands. I think that is the heart of leadership at the end of the day. I, um, Rob Kaiser um, and others have been involved in a thing called versatility, leadership versatility, and I think it, they're absolutely right. The leadership is about polar opposites and keeping a balance. So yes, let's t- while we're talking about trust um, and vulnerability and emotion, yes, you got to show vulnerability. But if you show too much vulnerability, you won't have any confidence. And yes, you got to show confidence. But if you show too much confidence, you're arrogant and not vulnerable. And holding that in the right tension is what makes leaders brilliant. But it's the art of leadership. And how do you learn that? How do you learn <laughs> what's the right amount? Um, I think you have to get feedback. Because it may be the right amount for this team at this moment in our company's history and another team and a different strategy and a different set of demands, it may be the wrong balance. So it's getting the skills and the comfort that I could do either. I know what it looks like to be vulnerable and I know what it looks like to be confident. I know what it looks like to be strategic. I know what it looks like to be quite tactical and operational. Um, I know what it looks like to be forceful. I know what it looks like to be quite nurturing and enabling. And I can choose from either of those depending upon what the situation needs. And I adapt depending on the person and the situation. Um, And that takes, boy, that is a lot of experience and a lot of trial and error and a lot of feedback and a lot of self-reflection, something we don't take nearly enough time for for as leaders. Um, yeah, Jenna, I, I want to come back to something you said earlier, sure, um, not to lose this on this balance. You said about emotions and being emotional. And I do make a distinction. When you tip into the distinction, into the zone where people say you're being emotional, you're too much. It's overdone. And it's tipping towards being out of control. The appropriate show of emotion is the recognition of the emotion and the ability to talk about the emotion. So it's the difference between that brings a tear to my eye and I'm sobbing hysterically. The latter Can you give us an example? Okay, so um, let's do another one. Anger. Uh, we uh-huh. all get angry plenty, uh, for and for good reason on occasion. And sometimes I might even argue as a leader appropriate to show that anger in the situation, in the context. So to be able to say, I am angry, even to have an edge in the voice on that one is a show of emotion that is not necessarily inappropriate given the situ- in the right situation. But to say, I'm angry with you and how dare you and you're an idiot and you've done this 25 times before and you do it again and I never want to see it, now I've become emotional. So it's kind of out of control. Okay, that's so- a very clear example. Um, Wanda, we have, to, we have to take a break now, but I just want to quickly summarize what we've just talked about, which is relationships are crucial, and being a leader means straddling many complex and sometimes contradictory um, skills and areas, and um, that, you know, this is, there's a lot of gray here. And so what we're going to talk about next is then pulling that all together to create great teams, dream teams. And so when we get back, we'll talk about that. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. Today, we're actually interviewing Dr. Wallace, about leadership and about relationships is what we've been talking about most recently. We're going to continue in the relationship theme, talking about dream teams, how to build great teams. So, Wanda, um, tell me about how you build a great team and what the role of relationships is in team building. Okay. Well, not surprisingly, it's a part of it. Um, I've been talking about, well, I've been talking about teams for ooh, almost 25, 30 years, I guess. I've been fascinated with what it is that it takes to bring a team together and kind of gel it. And I've started calling them dream teams. You know, those teams that it just kind of works and you achieve great things together and you say, wow, what an amazing experience. Almost everybody has one. But what is it that really is the secret sauce for that one? And here's, it is a bit of a work in progress, but here's what I believe today from watching this, it really takes. It's a little complicated. The first is we've got to get this the foundation right for the team. And I want to talk about four things that you have to get right as the foundation in order for anything else good to happen. And the first one of those, the one we miss more often than anything else, is we actually have to need each other. If I'm trying to bring a team together where the purpose is to share information and to get everybody okay with everybody else's information, I will never build a dream team. A dream team is going to come because I have something that I need, that we need to do together in order to succeed. So that's the first component. The second component is we have to have some experiences together. If we don't spend time together and see each other in multiple different contexts, we're not going to build that team. My favorite example from this one is um, Frederick Helgeson, actually. We interviewed him several months ago, and he talks about taking his team off to do something that none of them have ever done before at least once a year so they have that experience together and carries them through the year something to talk about. So that's the second component. The third component is a bit of appreciation of each other's style. So recognizing that we're not all identical, we don't all see this world the same way, we don't all think the same way, and that's good. Because if we don't do that, we're not going to have any variety in the team. If we don't have any variety in the team, we're going to have a group think. So now, it's okay if I have that sort of difference in the style, but if I don't appreciate your style, we're not going to get to the dream team. So that's the third component. And the fourth one is we're back to vulnerability. This willingness to open up and show a bit of myself, because that's where we really make the connections. If you do those four things as a foundation, you find that two things can come out of that that you can work on to bring out of that. One is we now get to a place where we start to understand each other better. And that is really important. And the second part that we have to do out of that is we have to make sure that everyone is included. 
And this is where people feel that I can have my style, I can have my perspective, and it's okay in this team because otherwise you don't get the diversity that I bring. You don't get the variety and experience and the innovation that comes out of that. So we have to actively manage that. If I do those two things, then good stuff starts to happen because now with the understanding and with the inclusivity, we can begin to build trust. And that's an iterative process. You keep going around on it and around on it until trust gets a bit higher. When I have trust in place, trust is what allows us to have the really tough, challenging, conflict-laden discussions. And it's those conflict-laden discussions that let us surface the real issues we need to talk about and come to some resolution. And it's out of that that we build great success, including being able to learn from our mistakes. But you miss the early seeds and you miss the trust and you're going to suboptimize performance all the way through. Well, that's actually what I'm wondering about. I'm wondering, I think we've all been in those teams in which everything's working well that you're talking about. But mostly, I think most of us have been in teams where that's not the case. So can you fix a team? Can you go back and build these items that you need that you've mentioned, you know, that you have to need each other, that you have to have shared experiences, that you appreciate each other's style and the vulnerability and the inclusivity? Can you build that from a team that's not functioning you can. Um, everybody has to slow down the work long enough, the, meaning the actual delivery work, long enough to do the work of working together effectively. I have done this with teams. It's not impossible. Um, and it takes an incredible willingness of people to say, right, we're not, do- we're not doing as well as we could, and to bring in an outside person who can kind of help you work through those pieces. And we do exactly what I describe. I go right back to the very beginning. Make sure you understand why you need each other, number one. Two, let's do something together. You have a common experience. And then three, styles. Where are your styles? And I often use an assessment here to see the differences. And then you use that to kind of build the inclusion and the understanding and the trust. In your experience, do teams understand that their problem is a teamwork problem or do they think it's something else? Um, It varies. And it varies depending on how much they need each other. So I've certainly worked with teams where you have one person accountable for one thing, somebody else accountable for another, somebody else accountable for another. Think top teams where I've got a business unit head, another business unit head, and a third business unit head. And they often don't actually believe that they need each other. And for a good part of what they do, they may not. And so the secret in bringing them together as a team is to find the thing that they actually really do need each other for. Um, and they need the other team members as well to be successful. And if you don't and, have well, that, you're not going to get there. And what would the process of intervention look like? Can you give us an example? How would you know you've got a problem and then how would you go about fixing it? Get, if you can give us a, sort of a real world example. It's usually not hard to know your problem. Everybody in the team can kind of say, you know, this is not a lot of fun being here and we'd rather not meet because it isn't any fun. It's not hard. Um, and you you sort of want to do some homework as you want, if you're the outside facilitator, you want to talk to everybody on the team so you actually really do understand the dynamics. And you do have to get some assessment of the different styles and the different roles that each person has to play so you're prepared to lead that discussion in an effective way. But then it's a matter of helping the team discover it about each other. And that's a facilitation. Okay, that makes sense. Um Okay, now we um, we talked earlier about skills, and I can imagine that all of this won't work unless you actually can develop the skills that you need to, to build great relationships, to work in a team, to lead. So can we go back more to the skills and focus in on what leaders can do to build okay. great skills? All right, so I already said I was conceptual, so I'm going to give you a conceptual thing here. I think there are three things. Every time you're trying to acquire a new skill, there are three things you have to do. The first one is don't just go rushing out. Try to understand what that thing is that somebody said you need to do better at means. And what it means is what do people who do it well do? So if we get action-oriented and get out of the adjective it's a whole lot easier to break it down. So that's the first thing. What does it really mean people are doing? 
And then second thing is go watch, you know, who does this well and can I copy how they did it? And then the third thing is, how do I keep it top of mind so that it becomes more of a habit for me? And if you can do those three, then you can acquire absolutely any skill anywhere. And so let me pick one that a lot of people say is very elusive, this thing called executive presence. Unless, Jana, you have a different one you want me to talk about. No, I think that would be really interesting for, for listeners. Okay. All right. So executive presence, people always say to me, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what is that? Executive presence, gravitas, any number of other names we look at. And the first thing I want people to understand is, yes, it is real. And yes, it does exist. But what is it people do who do it well? And I really think there's six components to it. And so one component is you have to look the part. If you don't look the part, we don't take you seriously. And we could debate all of these. The second is, I have to get my message structured and straight. It needs to be concise, clear, crisp. If it's not, nobody's listening to me anymore. Third thing is, I have to get my head straight so that mentally I'm not derailing myself by those internal voices that tell me I don't know what I'm doing. Um, We all suffer with the imposter syndrome. It's part of the human condition. And getting that one under control it's actually a doable, very practical, doable thing. And then the, the fourth thing is there's a bunch of physical habits we have that undermine our portrayal of confidence. So we got to figure out what those are and stop them or change them for some other habits. The fifth, or I think I'm fourth now, is about the, the saying calm. You know, knowing what it looks like to present that calm outer image, even if inside you're in not feeling quite so calm. Um, and then the next one is finding a way to connect with a receiver, and that is always going to be around emotion. And then the last part of presence is how do you handle challenge? Because people will come back to you with challenging questions. I disagree, and what did you mean, and where are you going, and what are the implications? And you've got to be able to handle that challenge with just as much coolness or calmness as you handle the original message. So if you take executive present in that sense and you break those down to those components and you say, those are the things that I have to do, and I may know how to do three of them, but I didn't know how to do three of them. Now let me go watch and copy. I might read and copy. I might get some coaching and copy. I might get some advice and copy. And then I got to keep practicing it until it becomes second nature to me. And can absolutely anyone learn to to demonstrate executive presence, or do you need a certain level of something in order to be able to do it? Uh, I personally believe anybody can learn it. Some people start higher up the scale, meaning there's more of those component parts that they know how to do than others, and they're more natural to them, and it's a shorter journey for them. Other people don't have very many of those component parts, and they've got a longer journey. So... Everybody can get better at it if you want to. I think it is a learning. I think if, all of these are learning. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if I break down some of those components just a little bit more? Because I know this is a challenging area. And personally, I feel that it may be more challenging for women than men, particularly in some of the issues of look the part. You know, men have a uniform and women don't. And, um, and so looking the part maybe is more of a challenge for women. It's maybe more of a challenge for millennials. Um, because of growing up at a different time. So can you talk about looking the part, and can you talk about physical habits? Okay. Well, there, we can talk all day for those. So first off is recognize that when I look at you, we, or all of us, when I look at you, we make a judgment. When we see this person on the street who looks disheveled, lying on the street, dirty, we make a judgment about their health and well-being and mental state. It may be accurate, it may not be accurate, but that's just as true for in the executive world. So if you don't look like somebody I should listen to, I won't take you seriously. What it is you look like completely varies by the culture of the company you're in. So if I walked into Apple in the Steve Jobs day and I walked in with a nice blue, you know, formal suit, nobody would take me seriously there. Mm -hmm. But equally, if I walked into one of my financial services institutions in jeans and a t-shirt, they wouldn't take me seriously there either. So the look of the part is what is it that people two, a step, two steps above you, how are they looking and do I look at par with them? So two Um, steps above. 
Yeah, and whether we like it or not, whether you think you should have to do it or not, it, it is a part of getting people to listen to your message in the first place. And it is harder for women, I agree, uh, because there isn't a uniform. Men have a neutral slate. It's fairly straightforward. And I think women have to figure out what their own neutral slate is and let it be their uniform, in effect. Mm-hmm. And what about physical habits? What did you mean by that? Okay, so we do nervous habits. Like I'm standing up and I'm fiddling with something in my hands. I'm playing with a pen or I'm twisting my jewelry or playing with my watch or constantly straightening my tie um, or moving my body in a regular movement or playing with my hair. Those are all physical habits that signal nervousness. And when I can see you're nervous, I know you're not confident. As an example, there's lots of them. And that presumably prevents us from finding a way to connect. Um, Well, this has been fascinating. Thank you for all of the valuable information about what we can do to to be better leaders, essentially, based on your experience coaching and advising um, literally thousands of executives around the globe each year. And um, so I've been talking to Wanda Wallace, the host of Out of the Comfort Zone. And um, as people probably know, she's the CEO and president of Leadership Forum, Inc. And um, this has been a great conversation. I'm now going to turn it back over to Dr. Wallace, since it's her show, to talk about next week's show. Okay. Jana, thanks. It's been interesting to be on the reverse side of the interview questions, so thank you very much for doing that. I've enjoyed it. Um, Next week, we'll go back to the regular format where I am interviewing someone else, and my guest will be Alan South, and we're going to talk about Alan's experience in innovation. I think you'll find it fascinating. Join us then. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.